Well, this morning, uh, unlike most mornings, we're not going to be in any one text in particular. We're actually going to take a survey of the whole Bible, so try and keep up. Uh, but oddly enough, we're going to start at the end. So we're going to be starting in Revelation chapter 21. And uh, if you would do me a favor when you leave, if you get a chance, say thank you to Matt Bradbury. In my defense, I asked him like two weeks ago to sing that song, not last night. So when he said he learned it yesterday, that's not on me. But thank you, Matt. Um, one of the reasons why I asked that is because what the words we're going to start with as we look at Revelation 21, uh, are actually, we've already sung them this morning. We've started by thinking about these words. And I want to start in Revelation 21 because I think we often get aspects of the Bible wrong because we forget the fact that much of the Bible is a story. And you know, there are so many stories where you miss a substantial amount of what's taking place on the first read. Because as is the nature of narratives, you didn't know where the story was going until you got to the end. So, for example, one of my favorite works, Pride and Prejudice, you won't know until you get to the very end of the book that what the title refers to is not Mr. Darcy, who you think for the vast majority of the book is the prideful and prejudiced one, but it's actually Elizabeth. And you don't know until the end of A Christmas Carol that Ebenezer is not some like dusty, cranky moniker that Charles Dickens thought fit well in front of Scrooge, but actually the meaning of Ebenezer gives you a foreshadowing of the revelation he is going to have by the time you reach the tale's end. So too, the Bible acts that way. If we know where the story is going, we can start to see all these themes, we can start to see all these threads and ideas that run throughout Scripture, and we can start to pick up on them. So I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then we are going to dive in, starting in Revelation 21, and then we're going to rewind the tape and come back from Genesis. So, Father in heaven, we gather this morning, 20 days into Advent, 20 days into waiting for a celebration. Many have prepared their homes, they've arranged gifts and cards, many await eagerly for the coming of December 25th. Father, I pray that you open our eyes as we explore this story this morning, that you unpack the extravagant beauty of the incarnation. I pray that we might not misunderstand what you have done here, but that we might see your love, which you showed, that we might celebrate it to a new degree and at a new level. Lord, I pray that we no longer look on manger scenes and hear old Christmas songs with merely sentimentalism. But Lord, I pray that we might experience Christmas afresh this year as we think about the big, broad story you have been telling from the beginning of creation. So Lord, this morning I ask, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be honoring in your sight and editing, edifying to my brothers and sisters gathered here this morning. Pray these things in the name of our Savior and your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. One more adjustment. We'll try and get this going. All right, there we go. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So this is where the story of Scripture ends. This is the culmination and consummation of all that the Bible has been pushing for. Heaven meets earth, creation made new. And in a year such as this, And when I say that, I mean, yes, a year of pandemic and political turmoil and civil unrest. But I mean, more specifically, in a year such as this, when I have seen not just our country and our world, but I have seen some of you suffer. I've seen physical pain and even paralysis affect some of you. I have seen financial hardship and occupational uncertainty plague some of your 2020s. The relational safety and security which halves our sorrows and doubles our joys has been stressed and strained. The victories which we have won in this fraught year have often passed with little to none of the deserved fanfare. The shoulders on which we usually cry and the arms on which usually lift us up are often absent in this year. I've also seen many of you struggle with major existential questions about who you are and what you'll do and where you'll be. And if all of those things are not enough, I've seen some of you flee your homes from a raging fire, uncertain of what you would return to. And so when I say in a year such as this, I mean all the things you see on the news, but more importantly, I mean in a year that for us, has been nothing short of apocalyptic. For us as individuals and family units, we have experienced a lot this year. And I fear that in that experience, we might hear the beautiful words of Revelation 21 and put the emphasis on the wrong thing. Put the emphasis on what is taken away in this passage. That every tear is wiped away. Mourning and crying are gone. Pain is gone. Death itself is dead. And we can all long for that dead. We can all desire the point at which the world is made new. But the emphasis of this text is actually not on what is absent, but what is present. Look with me at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the hope of mankind. This is the true treasure of heaven. All the things that our culture and that comfortable cultural Christianity often imports into heaven, the true joy is presence with God. The treasure of heaven is that at the end of history, it's not just that pain is gone, but that we will dwell with our God. So much of the text from Genesis to Revelation is given to this theme 
If we start at the end, we might have eyes better to see it. And so this morning, having seen the end of the story, I want to go back to the beginning and look at aspects of the story that build us towards a climactic crescendo when God's pursuit of us reached its apex. And so this morning, we are going to rehearse the story, seeing what God did to make Revelation 21.3 a reality. And so Santa Cruz Baptist Church, let us look at the perseverance necessary to make the dwelling place of God with man. Let us hear the story anew and afresh. It is a long story, so I want to give us three markers to help us get through this narrative. First, God moves to a covenantal creation of us. Second, we will see that in spite of that, we move east away from God. And notwithstanding those two things, God pursues us in unfathomable and greater covenant fidelity. So that's our outline this morning. So the story starts at the beginning where all good stories start. It starts with the words, in the beginning, God. That's it. No argument, no qualification, no backstory. In the beginning, God. He's just presumed. His existence is not argued for. It's just a fact. It's almost like in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus appears out of nowhere, just as a full-grown man ready to do ministry after being baptized. So, too, the Bible presumes the existence and presence of God. And rather than making any sort of theological discussion or metaphysical dialogue about God's existence, rather God just is and God speaks, and that which was not now is. And there's a rhythm and there's a beat to the story. And so when you listen closely, you hear the and God said, and there was, and God saw that it was good. Morning, evening, end of day. And then day two, and God said, and there was, and God saw that it was good, morning, evening, end of day. And it goes on like that, building in a rhythm. Because it's poetry, and like all good poets, Moses, by divine inspiration, knew how to break form in order to draw our attention right to the most important thing in the passage. Right to the creation of man in God's image. And Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28 describes how God in his Trinitarian nature created us. Genesis 2 expands on this so that we see we were not merely spoken into existence like the rest of creation, but rather God got his hands dirty. He got down in the dust like a potter with clay and formed Adam. And he put Adam in a place where God's presence would be felt palpably. One Genesis expert points out, that the presence of God was key to the garden and was understood by the author and the audience as a given from the ancient worldview. That means he doesn't have to explain it. He doesn't have to give you anything else. It's just if you understand it, if you read the text, you would have known it was there. The Garden of Eden would be better understood as a temple garden in which the Lord would dwell among his people. But when the scriptures speak about the presence of God... We have to keep in mind that they don't merely speak of geographic proximity. They mean relational intensity. When it speaks of the presence of God, it doesn't mean something you just happen to be close to. It means something you're in relationship with, meaningfully, 
even to the point of building one's identity. Actually, I think one of the most beautifully tragic descriptions of the presence of God comes just after man has sinned in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The creator of the universe here is pictured as taking a stroll in a beautiful place. And the way you would read the text, it implies that this was a regular thing. And that the expectation is that Adam and Eve, man and woman, would have joined him. The expectation then is that the presence of God walks with his people. Is joined by his image bearers. And we'll get to the fall in a moment. But this is one of the reasons why covenant is such a major theme in the Bible. You see, a covenant is an intensely relational agreement that stipulates terms between two parties such that it defines and establishes what would be necessary for relational flourishing. The goal of a covenant is increased flourishing within a relationship. That's why marriage is a covenantal union. It's not meant to stay the same, but that relationship is meant to flourish even greater from that moment on. It feels even silly introducing Genesis 1 and 2 only to stop there because there's so much more that we could say. But we'll have to leave it at this. By the end of Genesis 1 and 2, what you have is that God has established all that is necessary for humanity to dwell in his presence with increasing enjoyment. There's nothing lacking. They want for nothing. They experience life and they experience it to the full. But we know the story doesn't stay there. We move east. That might be slightly confusing, but the tragedy of the fall of Genesis 3, we read Genesis 3:24. He drove out the man. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The words east of the garden here could be taken as just sort of like innocuous direction. Except for that would be rather odd because east needs some other reference point. If I tell you to go east, the next question should be east from what? I need to know some other location, some other marker in order to know what you mean by east. So what is it? What is east of? Well, we get that a little bit later. Throughout the scriptures, the movement east means movement away from the presence of God. It's not a comment about various cultures. It's simply a theological interpretation of actual historical events. The people moved east, and in that movement, it symbolized walking away from God. Consider how Genesis 2 told us that the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and he placed man there. Why would that be important? It's an odd statement. It's God everywhere in the world, literally, to plant that garden. Why would he put it in the east? Seems to me that the implication has to be that even though creation was very good in God's eyes, there was room for growth. 
Because east away from the presence of God meant man and woman, as they, filled the command, as they fulfilled the commandments to be fruitful and multiply, could progress towards God. That there was movement into his presence, into deeper relational intensity. And we get to the reference to why we understand east as being away from the presence of God in Genesis 4. When the jealous rage of Cain leads him to murder his brother. And think about these words. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That can't just be a reference to God's omnipresence. God is everywhere. So how could you ever go away from him? Well, you could only go away from him is if you left the relationally intense covenant with God. And so we, humanity, moved east. And we see this theme actually build throughout Scripture such that in Genesis 11, after the flood has wiped out wickedness and God has attempted a restart with a new Adam, we find that the population of the world, rather than filling the earth, spreading out, they decide to group together. And rather than seeking the glory of God, they seek to make their names great. And so they build or attempt to build a construction project up into the heavens, up into the realm of God. We could associate this movement east, by the way, which we're told that it takes place in Shinar, which would be a movement east. This movement east could be associated with rejecting God's commands, trying to do your own thing. So what we were expected to do from creation was move into deeper covenant relationship with God. But what we did instead was we rebelled, we pushed back, we moved east away from God. And in many ways we could track the rest of the biblical story that way. Looking from Cain to Babel, from Babel to the exile, where God's people, because of their unfaithfulness, were taken off into captivity, into where? The east. One biblical scholar described the situation in the Old Testament saying, like Solomon and many kings after him, the people worshipped at the high places and made sacrifices to other gods, practiced divination, and worshipped idols of the nations. In fact, the record of Israel's history from Joshua to 2 Kings reveals nothing but a downward spiral of the nation towards the removal from the land. And so we have this beautiful covenantal creation and our rejection of it. And yet throughout the story, we have God pursuing constantly, renewing that covenant. Such that in Genesis 12, God calls out to a man named Abram who is living in a land called Haran. And he leads him to a land called Canaan. By the way, a movement east to west. We're coming back home. And God establishes his covenant with Abram in Genesis 12, saying, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. 
And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Though it's not explicitly stated in this text, we have to read this text about an act of reestablishing God's presence amongst his chosen people. Abram is going to metaphorically move from east to west, away from God's presence towards God's presence, which requires the act of faith of leaving his home, leaving all that he knew, leaving his relational securities, his financial investments, leaving everything. And obedience to this call would ultimately result in the establishment of God's presence amongst his people in his place that he has chosen. As one commentator put it, we must read this story and God's promise as more, or sorry, God's promise is not just a place for Abram to tie up his camels. You see, the promise of land has to mean something specific. He could have given him anything, but he chose something specific to lead him not just to a place to tie up his camels, but to lead him to a place that was symbolic of God's presence. And so what we see in this covenant is that God's relational pursuit of Abram in order to bless him, in order to bless his descendants, and in order to bless all the nations. We must state clearly that the Bible sees no place for blessing that is apart from his presence. Consider how God reiterates this promise to Abram's descendant Isaac. Genesis 28, 14 and 15. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and the south. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now listen to this new part. Behold, I am with you and will keep you whatever, wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. You see, at this point, the promise to Abram now becomes the promise to Isaac, and the promise of God's blessing becomes explicit. And the story of the Israelites is saturated with language like this. Exodus 2, 23 through 25. This is at the very beginning, after God's people have gone from some small tribe into a nation of people in captivity. And we read, during those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What a weird way to end a sentence. New, new what? Well, this term new here is evocative of that deep relational commitment. In fact, the most prominent place it is used in the Old Testament is to refer to the sexual intimacy within marital union. This isn't just factual knowledge for God. This isn't just something he's playing around with in his head. He knows relationally, covenantally, experientially, what is taking place with his people. And then God's presence manifests itself in a burning bush to save them. Increasing his relational intensity in that scene, God ups the ante by giving Moses his personal name. And so from then on, he is not just God generally, he is Yahweh. 
And he commissions Moses to liberate his people in Exodus 6, saying, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So you see that God picks these people again. I will take you to be my people. And after establishing this liberation, God renews his covenant with them, telling them in Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you where? To myself. In Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See that, how Yahweh connects himself, not just to who he is metaphysically, but to this people. I am the Lord, your God. And in his instructions concerning the construction of the tabernacle, he explains its purpose, saying in Exodus 25, And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I might dwell in their midst. Santa Cruz Baptist Church, do you hear the relational nature of these texts? Do you hear how desirous God is in these texts? To establish closeness with us. It's not that he needs us. It's not that God's lonely. He wants to build relational intensity because of who he is and who we were created to be. God was relationally pursuing his people, even in the midst of their eastward march away from him. But he's not done. He would take more than all of these things. The story, as we've sort of already rehearsed, is that Israel continues to rebel, even as the covenant is renewed time and again. And they're carried off into captivity, carried off into the east, And many fall away, and many are unfaithful. Yet even in captivity, one of God's prophets, named Malachi, tells them this. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Did you catch that? Who is coming? A messenger, but who after him? The Lord himself. He's essentially saying, no more third parties. If this thing is going to be done, If this covenant will be established once and for all, it will require that I show up. And in Mystery of Mysteries, the prophet of God declares to God's exiled people that he will come to them again, and he will come personally, and that they will again experience the presence of God. 
But how? How on earth would that happen? How is it that the God of the universe who created man for himself, who pursued man in covenant, who forgave man's sin time and time again, how could he once and for all establish that covenant? How could he once and for all make it so that he could dwell with his people? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke from his sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son. And they called his name Jesus. I fear sometimes that this text might become too normal to us. And that we miss that the only way to describe what is taking place here is to use to borrow a phrase from pastor and theologian Sam Storms, a parade of paradoxes. What is happening here? The Word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. The eternal entered into the temporal. The transcendence descended. The unlimited became limited. The unbreakable became a fragile baby. The essential spirit became matter. The supremely independent became dependent upon a teenage mother. The almighty became weak and vulnerable. The exalted endured infantile indignities. The glorious one entered obscurity. The heir of heaven's joy entered the grief of a broken and sinful humanity. The throne room of God was traded for a cold cave stable. The songs of angels were swapped for the snorts and grunts of livestock. And the ruler of the world submitted to being ruled by human parents. You get the point because I could go on. This is the solution to the eastward march. Man's movement away from the presence of God would require nothing less than the cosmic movement of God to man. Heaven come to earth. God's presence with us. Which, by the way, was foreshadowed in the story. Again, something that we might pass over because it becomes too routine around this time. But consider the unimaginable providence of God of this passage which describes the very first worshipers of Jesus Christ. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, from where? From the east, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. 
and we have come to worship him. Picking up just a few verses down in verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The first worshippers of Jesus, providentially drawn from the east. Jesus himself would embody this same movement, by the way, decades later in his life. When in fulfillment of that Malachi prophecy we read earlier, Mark 11 records that Jesus would enter the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And he would enter by the city of Bethany and the Mount of Olives, which would require Jesus to start in the east and move west, entering the city. And where would he go? He would walk straight through the city, stopping at his temple. The presence of the Lord returning. He brings with him 12 disciples, symbolizing 12 new tribes of Israel, symbolizing the new humanity. Jesus has brought his people back. Jesus himself, though, oddly enough, would declare, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is of advantage of you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him. Have you ever considered the oddity of that verse? How on earth could it be better that Jesus is not here? When you experience the brokenness and the pain that you have this year, when you see what is taking place in our world, how on earth could it be better that Jesus is not with us? That we cannot touch our Savior. It can only be better because of who the Holy Spirit is. It is better because the coming of the Holy Spirit is actually the ultimate end to that eastward reversal. God has done more than come and retrieve us this time. He has come to our captivity in sin, to our exile from his presence, and he has filled us with his presence. Consider how theologian Wayne Grudem describes the work of the Holy Spirit. He says... We may define the work of the Holy Spirit as follows. The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. Starting at the end, we can see where this whole thing is going now. We can see that how what God has wanted from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 is to dwell with his people. And we time and time again move east away from him. But God in dogged pursuit comes and gets us. I hope I've led us on a faithful journey through the scriptures looking at this eastward movement. Again, it's not just about cultures. This is a theological interpretation of a historical event. But I want to close with three quick reflections about how this ties into what we're experiencing this week in Christmas. So my three quick reflections. The first is what is the true meaning of heaven? Heaven, if we understand it rightly, is not primarily a party for us. It's not primarily about reuniting with dead loved ones. It's not about harps and clouds. It's not about the removal of restrictions or limitations. Those things whether they are true or not, pale in consideration 
to what the true meaning of heaven is. Getting back to where we started, it is that the dwelling place of God will once and for all be with man. That he created us to walk with him. He pursued us in covenant that we might turn to him. He spoke to us that we might hear him. He saved us that we might live with him. He put his Holy Spirit in us that we might be sealed for him. And one day, we will dwell in his presence. That is the prize of heaven. Let me say it another way. If you would gladly take all the trappings that most people imagine heaven has, even if God were not there, you have misunderstood heaven and you might have misunderstood this entire thing we call the Christian faith. The party of heaven is called the marriage supper of the Lamb, which means it is joyful, yes, It is glorious, yes. We are there, yes. But heaven is about Jesus. Second reflection, the true meaning of Christmas. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate God's work, God's unfathomable and surprising work to make Revelation 21-3 a reality. You know, theologians and philosophers get together almost every year to try and figure out how to describe the Incarnation. You can describe the crucifixion and resurrection pretty fine, which is weird because it's hard to imagine a man coming back from the dead. But can you even begin to understand what is required by the God of the universe taking on flesh? So easy to get lost in the shopping and the decorating and the cooking and all the rest that goes with Christmas. So easy to get caught up in the window dressings of baby Jesus and a nice manger scene. But Christmas is nothing less than the Christian D-Day. The plan from eternity past for God to win back his people. That God would dwell in the flesh of man so the man in renewed flesh might one day dwell with God. Third, the true meaning of blessing. We live in a world that gets so wrong what it means to be blessed. You know, when I, uh, I taught New Testament at a local high school, I would have my students uh, search on a social media the phrase, hashtag blessed. <laughs> Let me give the disclaimer that the school's content filter curated much of what showed up, so don't worry. <laughs> But the fact that I have to give that disclaimer tells you that that which people most think of when they think of blessed is often not only just superficial, but completely counterintuitive to what the Bible means when it says blessed. See, to be blessed according to the overwhelming consensus of Scripture is to be in God's presence. The two actually ultimately become synonymous in Scripture. Which is why I can only say what I'm about to say after prefacing it that way. Because I truly, firmly, with every fiber of my being, believe God wants to bless you. But I believe that doesn't mean that he wants to give you material things fundamentally, but that he wants to draw you closer to him. He wants to invite you further up and further into relationship with him. He wants you to delight in him. He wants you to find your peace in him. He wants to see your value through him. And he wants you to find your identity in him. And in my experience, and in my reading of scripture, my study of history, that is most likely going to happen when you enter into the sorts of circumstances 
that this world would seem completely contrary to blessed. Hashtag blessed and real blessed seem to me to be at odds. With those three reflections in mind, as I was studying, I came across a prayer from a 17th century pastor. I've modified it a bit for us this morning, and so I'd just like to close by praying this prayer. Would you bow with me? Lord, only misery would await us if our hopes and joys resided finally in this world, in the material and in the circumstantial. Why? Because we are ultimately hopeless without Christ's righteousness, which opens up to us a dwelling place in your presence. We can learn to be happy with or without worldly enjoyments, but all the things in this world cannot make us happy without you. So however you treat us in this world, whatever you deny to us in this life, Lord, do not deny us yourself. We can learn from Job and Lazarus. We can be taught by the disciples, as well as Paul and Silas, how to be comfortable in difficulty, how to live abundantly in lack. But all the riches, the palaces, and the honors of earth will leave us miserable if we are without you. Without you, we would be wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, no matter our worldly possessions. So, Father, our prayer this morning, for us and for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we ask that you show us your presence, that you help us to feel it, to acknowledge this reality. We are grateful for what you have done to call us into your presence. We are grateful for the abundance you have shown us. We are grateful for the works you have been doing in us through your spirit. And so Lord, I pray, teach us joy, peace, and love through abundance in you. Teach us to desire your kingdom as we abide in your son. In whose name we pray. Amen.